AT&T and Time Warner, the end of the world as we know it? And should Coke nix content marketing? This is episode 53 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm still Tom A. Sacker. Yes, indeed. And Tom, I think before we dig in, we have to recognize that this past week it was reported that Vessel was being scooped up and squashed all at once. I love how that's done. We're going to buy you and then we're going to eliminate you. Isn't that something? Didn't we? I, I think we may have predicted that as well. This is indeed why I'm mentioning it, because anyone who uh, trawls through uh, the old episodes will find that we predicted exactly that kind of outcome. So I just want to pat you on the back uh, virtually. And didn't, didn't we predict that Vine wouldn't last either? I don't remember what we said about Vine, but uh, it wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of wasn't good, let's see if we have something better to say about AT&T and Time Warner. We all know that uh, the uh, plans for the deal were announced recently. That's AT&T's acquisition of Time Warner for $85 billion, billion with a B. Good thing, bad thing, or indifferent thing. Um, the votes are all over the place on this, Tom. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Mark, we are living in the age of opinion. So I guess it's okay it's for us to toss ours into the mix, right? Let people tease out their own truth. Yeah. I mean, look, this this isn't anything that I think is unusual at all. I mean, we're going to see consolidation of distribution and content providers all over the place. I mean, we're already mm -hmm. seeing it. I mean, when you see mm -hmm. people like Amazon and Netflix producing original series and films... Mm -hmm. You start realizing that, hey, if I've got attention, I need to figure out what to do with that attention. Take a look at Apple, right? And so before, you, before you go on, Tom, go ahead. The, 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 the reverse is also true. If I've got content, I got to figure out how to get attention in a time when it's being stretched every which way. Oh, no, absolutely, right? We'll talk about that when, in, in the next uh, little segment that we're talking about. But, but think about, for example, like an Apple. So you're Apple. Mm -hmm. And so they did the watch, big deal. Nothing really happened right with that. And they're sitting on a couple hundred plus billion dollars of cash. Right. And they're trying to figure out how are we going to create unique value for the attention that we garner? That's the value that they have. Mm -hmm. My guess, they'll end up buying Netflix for like a measly 50 billion or something. I mean, it's the yeah, Wild it's West. It's the Wild West. This is an attention it's, land grab, Mark. One of the things that I think is uh, understated in this whole thing, and when people look at the motivations, they can't make sense of it, and they say, well, bad for consumer, good for consumer, will it be approved, won't it be approved? You talk about attention, I think there's a, another aspect to attention, which is relationship. And the thing that Apple has that people often forget about is they have relationships with tens of millions of consumers, right? They have credit card information. Oh, yeah. They have account information with tens of millions of consumers in addition to all the emotional overlays and, you know, hardware and software relationships they have. By the same token, AT&T has exactly the same kind of relationships with millions of consumers. In fact, they share mm -hmm. many of those relationships with Apple. And it seems to me that if you look at Time Warner, who generally lacks those relationships, right? They know that, okay, HBO has however many millions of subscribers. We know who those people are. Right. But beyond that, they don't know who anybody is, right? All this content that's pumped out 
of Time Warner. They don't know who these people are. They don't have email addresses. They don't have credit cards. AT&T has all this. So AT&T is looking at the kind of the attention sphere you just identified right. and saying, look, as attention gets more and more stretched out, we have to make our attention work harder. And the right. best way we can work, work, make it work harder is by getting more of the time people attend on our content, our products. And right now we don't have any content to share. Let's buy some. No, no, listen, Mark, the poster child for doing it right is Bezos at Amazon, right? Is as he developed attention, and it started out, remember, this guy was selling books online. Mm -hmm. Right. I think people forget that. And then as he got the attention, and like you said, developed the relationships, which were the credit cards, the trust, all right. of that, he just went as deep as he could. Right now he's doing his own original TV programming. So right. he kept asking, what more can I offer these people who trust me? Given that, what, given that I know who they are and that I do have a relationship with them and they will come back to me on a regular basis for, even if it's just for books, now it's for books and for movies and for audio and for this, that, everything. everything. Yeah, podcasts, you know, music, movies. This is why, Tom, I think it's interesting when people ask the question, well, will this be approved by the feds? Will they look at this deal as, you know, not bad for consumers, not extracting value for consumer? And I'll tell you, I think they're going to bite on this. I think they're going to let this go. Um, it, it, not, and not only because they let Comcast and NBC Universal happen, although that is an analogous deal. So to say that this is wrong and to say that that is right is a little bit hard to stomach, mm. although Comcast and AT&T are not you know, nearly the same. Um, so that's one. I think, though, the other thing, and you're alluding to it, is that the federal government is going to look at this as the category that the company is in. They're going to look at AT&T in the communications and mobile category. They're going to look at Time Warner in the content category. And they're going to say, well, clearly these are different categories. So, you know, this is not like AT&T buying T-Mobile. This is AT&T buying NBC Universal. And that we will probably approve, don't you think? The only problem here is, the, is, is how the signal gets into the house. Do, do you know what I mean? For example, if high-speed Internet access was a utility, they, they would approve this yesterday. They wouldn't care. What they worry about is, okay, if I'm Comcast and, and, and I've got these people hooked, their cable bill hooked, right? And they say, well, I don't want to do this whole TV deal. And then they come back to you and say, well, then your cable bill is going to triple if you don't want to do the TV deal. That's, I think, what they start looking at. And I think that's why on Monday, AT&T's CEO and his uh, counterpart at Time Warner, they, they unveiled plans for like an over-the-top $35 a month streaming video service that would offer 100 premium channels, and it wouldn't require a subscription <laughs> to a cable or satellite provider. Isn't that, that's PR genius, is it not? Because yeah. the reality is the fundamental objection you voiced was one that was already the horse that left the barn after Comcast NBC Universal. Once that deal was approved, they already decided that that fear was moot at that point. So now what's going on is these guys are countering the lingering objection by saying, look at this brand new asset we're going to create mm -hmm. that's, you know, eminently consumer friendly, made possible only by the happy merger between these two giant uh, <laughs> Goliaths. 
Uh, I mean, it's 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 it it's funny, but also I think they have a point. Frankly, uh, one of the um, objections has been, well, the res- uh, potential restricting of content. Right? I mean, one of the articles that we read has a line: Do you go with Comcast so you can watch Saturday Night Live through Comcast on NBC, or do you stick with AT and T so you can watch Game of Thrones? I mean, come on. Wrapped up in that is this notion that somehow. You're only going to be able to see SNL <laughs> on Comcast, and you're only going to be able to see Game of Thrones on AT&T. And you and I both know that they're going to maintain a heavy incentive to distribute this content as wide and as far as they can, as it can be negotiated, because this content is still going to need to be a hit. It's still going to need to have a life outside of their own platform, right? No, that's true. That's true. But I, I think regulators are, are less worried about the fact that you need to give something up if you choose something else, I mean that's how mm-hmm. the marketplace works in general. I think what that's true too, right? I think I was, what they're more concerned about is the escalating. Look at cable fees. Look at look at the pricing of cable. Mm-hmm. How it's how it's gone up and up and up and up and up, and people don't feel that they have a way out of that. How do I get mm-hmm. out of this and still watch what I want to watch? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what they worry about. So if I all think of you're this right. stuff was streaming, let me tell you, the day when yeah. all of this is streaming through some Google fiber to everyone's home, oh, mm-hmm. then this whole thing just blows up. You mean it's a moot point? Oh, absolutely point. moot point. Yeah, see, I think that's true, and I think all of this concern over control of bandwidth and control of access and control of content and so on, I mean, you know, they're saying, well, you know, data plans be more expensive and they can do this thing called zero rating, which is Hmm. they don't charge you on your data plan for content that they own, but they will charge you on your data plan for content that some other (laughs) provider owns, which is very clever. But frankly, to me, what's obscured by all that is we have a march to lower priced data. Mm Mm-hmm ever lower price data, ultimately, uh, you know, maybe we'll never reach that point, but ultimately to zero. I mean, data is going to get less and less expensive per unit because the appetite is there and because people are realizing the values in the content and distribution, right. not in the charging of people for access per se. Yep. Well, that's in exactly what monopoly power tries to do is just to prevent commodity pricing, right? So, <laughs> so that's what's going on with AT&T. What's going on with Time Warner? That's, a diff- that's, a, that's basically what you were saying earlier, that you can have the greatest content in the world, but if you don't have the pipes, if you don't have the delivery system, it doesn't matter. That's right. And in terms of you know, keeping content away from someone who's not on my platform and is on some other platform, well, you made the point. They do that all the time. I mean, if you don't have HBO, if you're not paying for HBO, guess what? You don't, you get, don't get HBO. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> you get to choose. Exactly right. All right, you're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Tom, should Coke nix content marketing? Now, we know what content marketing <laughs> is. That's the, you know, the, the, the current um, uh, effort to, um, to, to use content. Uh, gosh, I'm, I'm struggling for well, it's a definition ad, it's, here. But... It's, it's like, what do we do? We can't get people's attention advertising. I know. That's correct. Let's do content. <laughs> yeah, we're going to provide stuff that presumably they're actually interested in, in to substitute for advertising in the hopes that at some point down the way that actually moves our product, which, of course, is the big question, whether or not it does that. And, and I just love this article. This is from um, something called Bookmark This. And um, a guy actually did the homework to try and determine how effective Coca-Cola's much vaunted, uh, vaunted uh, content marketing efforts were. And his conclusion, in a nutshell, was 
Not very. (laughs) So here's what he says. Last November, Coca-Cola's marketing team announced that the corporate website is dead and press release PR is on its way out. The eulogy cemented the brand's transformation of its main site, Coca-Cola Journey, into a digital magazine, a place to showcase those higher order brand values through lifestyle content. It was a move from creative excellence of its well-known advertising to content excellence. This is a big initiative much discussed uh, from Coke. So here's what he did, and I just love this. He sampled 87 posts on Coca-Cola's Journey site to see whether people are really engaging with the stories. He documented the number of shares to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn from each post. Here's what it says, quote, I discovered the level of interaction was negligible. The average number of shares from a post uh, to Facebook was 238, to LinkedIn 103, to Twitter 42. Each post averaged eight comments, (laughs) and two-thirds of posts received none at all. It's worth pausing for a moment to consider the implications. One of the biggest brands in the world generates next to no interaction through its primary window to the world. (laughs) What do you think, Tom? No, it's kind of funny. Listen... Think about this. Prior to the Internet, who in the hell or how could anyone study whether anything anyone was doing made any kind of sense? You couldn't. That's true. Right? And even if you could do it, who are you going to tell? A few of your friends? (laughs) (laughs) Like, why would they care? So there was, like, no value in doing it. Now, because this guy has got some attention from doing it, there's all kinds of value. So I think that that's a lesson for anyone that's going to do something online in mm-hmm. public view is that everyone has a reason to go in there, especially if you're big and you have a name, to mm-hmm. go rip it apart, to analyze it and figure out what's going on. Mm. And I thought that the headline of the article was the most revealing part, right? So it says, when a dominant global brand goes all in on content, it's hard not to assume it's got it figured out. <laughs> I thought that was funny because isn't that what we do, right? I told it is, you, it I, is. They're smart. They must know something. They know what well, they're doing. Oh, well. It's like we, we drove around and we saw sports authority stores all over America. So we assume they must have it all they figured out. They must know out, something. Right? And Circuit City, too. For Circuit City. It's a psychological bias, right? And, but it's funny because based on the madness of today's marketplace, it's erroneous. Just because something's everywhere or looks good or a big brand is doing it, that doesn't mean that it makes any sense at all. It's so funny because this is something, you know, nobody, uh, we have often said once we're done with the show that then we usually talk for another 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> we've stuff. often said that we wish we, we had, you know, recorded the 15 or 20 minutes after this show because half of the time it's you telling me, Mark, nobody knows what's going on. <laughs> Everyone's got their head in their hands and they're hoping for the best and they're just smiling, looking straight ahead and hoping for the best. No, it's true. Somebody <laughs> described it once to me is that all these organizations are like ducks. When you look at them on the top of the water, they look really calm, just kind of floating <laughs> along. But underneath the water, their feet are going all over the place. And that, that's what's going on. And this move from creative he wrote it's a move from the creative excellence of its well-known advertising right to content excellence so i'm looking and i'm saying what the hell is content excellence content excellence on its own is like a, an excellent tree falling in the woods it still doesn't make any noise if no one hears it right that's right so without that's distribution right. 
It doesn't matter what your content's like. Are Donald's and the Donald and Hillary speeches, are those content excellent? Mm-hmm. No. But the media is pumping out a steady flow. I have no idea about the value of the third party candidate's content because mm-hmm. I, have, I never see it. Right. So that could be the biggest part of what's going on over here. It's like, I know I have nothing to do. Let's go to the Coca-Cola website and see what's going on over there. It doesn't work like that. Also, I think that what's pretty clear is some of the people at Coca-Cola who are working on this have gained kind of, but you know, by their association with Coke, kind of cult celebrity status. So the people look to them, and then the people inside Coke look to them, and now all of a sudden it becomes this self-perpetuating thing that's kind of devoid of reality. That's kind of this myth, you know, it's a, it's a corporate myth more than anything. In the article here, they quote two executives from Coke saying exactly the opposite things. Eric Schmidt, senior marketing manager, marketing strategy and insights stated that mentions on the web had, quote, no statistically significant relationship to short term sales. Shortly after, Wendy Clark, SVP Global Sparkling Brands Center, which is <laughs> my favorite title, <laughs> administered a swift slap on the wrist stating We've been able to track closed-loop sales from site exposure to in-store purchase. Unfortunately, she provided no hard evidence to refute the original assertion. So the guy in charge of all this is a guy named uh, John, uh, John, I think it is, Mindenhall. And he says their goal at Coke is to, quote, earn a disproportionate share of popular culture. And what's interesting to me about that is that's their goal. But where's the evidence that that goal is successful, number one? And number two, where's the evidence that goal has any linkage whatsoever to moving actual product, which is, after all, the business of Coke? Yeah, what they're doing is they're saying, okay, well, advertising is popular culture. Advertising drove Coke to be this iconic brand. So let's go figure out how to create popular culture online, which people will spread around, and then by association... Because everybody has this feeling of, well, Coke did this, they'll want mm-hmm. to buy a Coke. <laughs> and well, that's, that's, the that... loose, that's the connection that I think is starting to fall apart, frankly, Mark. Yeah, well, that's, that's the theory. And <laughs> No, let me ask you something. I watch a lot of stuff on Netflix. If Netflix yes. released a beverage tomorrow, I wouldn't buy it. I'm trying to tell you that the connection between the thing that I'm pouring down my throat and whether or not the content that I just read engaged me is a loose mm-hmm. one at best today. In the well, past, it was, it was much easier to connect the dots because, look, there were only a couple of brand things that you could drink anyway. Not only that, but I was going to say that there were only you know three and a half channels and only, yeah, only a couple of brands, only three and a half channels, only so much uh, attention uh, with only uh, a small number of ways to reach that attention. So Coke could do whatever the heck it wanted. So the idea that Coke can today achieve what it achieved then uh, through modern technology when everyone has the same access to the same tools is, I think, uh, well-intentioned and a nice theory. As the article says, the point is that a brand's website will, was, is never the center of attention nor a point of origin because it is not and never will be a content destination possessing a genuine readership. 
producing content regularly in sufficient quantity and at a level of quality that enough people read it and are inspired to share it is a resource-intensive task. Just ask <laughs> the publishing industry. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, he wraps this way. He said, avoiding evidence-based discussion contributes to a growing and public credibility gap between what senior marketers are saying and what is being delivered. All marketing strategies should start with why. I mean, what a great way to end it, I thought. <laughs> Look, Mark, the problem is is not the evidence. It, I mean, the evidence definitely you have to look at. But if you don't have a theory of how things work in the first place, you won't even understand what the data means. I mean, he wrote that in the social age, brands are very brittle creations. Mm -hmm. In a world of increased transparency, and audience empowerment, turning brands into media companies has long been considered a way forward. What he's got wrong is brands aren't brittle creations because of increased transparency and audience empowerment. That's not what's going on. Mm -hmm. They're fading creations because of the overwhelming amount of clutter and the various <laughs> alternatives. I mean, when you have a, a, so many different alternatives, then, then that's, so look, either you don't stand out because of this overwhelming amount of choice, which kills mass market brands, or you do stand out as something not very beneficial to my life, which is mm -hmm. kill you just as quickly. That's right. So that's, that's, right. that's the game. Good points all. And I, I guess I just, as an aside, I thought, well, what is really driving Coke? Um, and I, I took a look at their 10 most popular products, and obviously the most popular of all their products is so-called Coca-Cola Classic. But, you know, if you look at 10, it's a uh, fruit juice drink. Hmm. If you look at 9, it's a product that they actually acquired uh, called Del Valle, um, which is big in Mexico, Venezuela. Hmm. Um, 8 is Minute Maid. 7 is Powerade. Six, only at six you, do you get to a traditional fizzy, you know, soda right. and so on down the line. That's one. And then the second thing I looked at was internationally, you know, they have a very um, uh, comparatively small penetration in booming countries like India and China. And when you look at their growth over time and you look at the new products, the changing portfolio of products and their growth internationally, then you stand back and say, so wait a minute. So in other words, this is because of content marketing that this is happening? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I'm with you, Mark. All right. It's time for rants and raves, Tom. What's up this week? Well, this isn't really media. So I, I have to apologize up front for that. And you're going to have to tell me whether this is a rant or a rave, because I, I honestly couldn't figure it out. I just, I just knew that it got into my brain and started, you know, moving around in there. And it said, "Geez, you gotta, you gotta say something about this." I just discovered that there's a spoon that can change the way food tastes. Have you heard about this thing? <laughs> no. Okay, no, no. it's called the Taste Buddy. And it's being developed to manipulate your taste buds and make everything more delicious. The, listen, the article wow. headline that I read says you can make broccoli taste like chocolate. Now, I, if I had known this, right, I would, I would have handed out spoons and broccoli Monday night for trick-or-treaters. Wait, the product's called what again? Taste Buddy. Taste Buddy. I thought this was the, this is why weed exists. Listen, this is... <laughs> Exactly. But this isn't a joke, and it's not illegal. 
It looks, <laughs> listen, the company right now, I don't know what they're doing. They're targeting dieters say because it's like low-hanging fruit to them. The article says, when trying, no to, pun intended. When, right, when trying to stick to a diet, the temptation of delicious sugary snacks can be too much to resist. But there's good news for dieters trying to avoid these unhealthy foods. A device called Taste Buddy has been designed that tricks the tongue into tasting unappetizing healthy food as delicious treats. No, listen, oh, I, I know this sounds crazy as hell. The article goes on to say that the early proto prototype is restricted to imitating sweet or salty taste, right? But future versions have the potential to completely alter our diets. For instance, by transforming bland tofu into juicy steak. <laughs> I, listen, I thought this was a joke, but it's not. And it looks so it looks like the Matrix is getting closer and closer to being a reality. Is, did you order one of these? Is this on Kickstarter or is this real? No, now? this is like a real thing. Not, but listen, I think they're missing a golden opportunity, especially to boomers who have all of this money to spend. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening, spoon marketers, here's where I think you should go with these spoons nursing homes and hospitals mm -hmm. because imagine telling boomers they'll never get a phone call from their parents complaining about the food <laughs> or that they're not keeping up with their nutritional requirements i mean I, that's a slam dunk to me <laughs> that's great i love that and what's so funny is you and i both have topics that are related to food because you know, if there's one product which does not need its taste altered, it is the delicious product called Pringles. Don't do artisanal. I will hang up. <laughs> no, it has nothing to do with artisanal. Gosh, I hate that word. Um, no, this is from a publication called Mobile Marketer. And I just love this. This is, this is definitely a, this is a rave about the article, but a rant about the product. All right. And the title is Pringles' attempt at virality urges consumers to play with their food. So the tone of this is so funny because I just it's you can tell that the author is just not at all a fan of this. <laughs> so earlier in October, an image of a Pringles ring was posted on a science themed feed, which was a fine nerd culture joke pick, a would be meme. And in the interim two weeks, several people notice the reference. Several people <laughs> have posted their own Ringle Pringles ring sculptures to social media said James McNally, director of digital strategy at TDT New York. And in a sign the Kellogg Company's social agency is paying attention to hashtag Pringles chatter, the potato chip maker has created a press release and an infographic on creating a, quote, ringle. Now, I have a picture of this here, and suffice it to say, you know, there's no way people are going to spend their time creating this kind of thing. Um, the, even the article says the ringle is slowly but surely catching on. <laughs> But the tone of the piece is, well, we can't find too many people doing this. We don't know if it's going to spread or not. And I love the guy McNally again towards the end. He says, so what is the ringle and what does it represent, Mr. McNally said. On one hand, it's an Internet wannabe phenomenon that's not even remotely close to trending and which has essentially zero chance of going viral beyond a few diehard Pringles fans. And on the other, it's an example of Kellogg doing what they can to capitalize on brand chatter. Oh, <laughs> Just man. Talk about putting a bright, uh, you know, a, a positive spin on it. Ultimately, I doubt we'll hear much or anything about the Ringle in the future. 
<laughs> so, and I look just the, the 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 title Pringles attempted virality. It's like. You know, don't try so hard to make me do stupid things with my food. If you want me to buy the chips, give me a good reason to buy the chips. But this is not one of them. So, and that, oh, they even say, oh, wait, let me find this. The, the Ringle has been heralded by influencers of unexpected sorts, including Jane Espenson, renowned television writer for Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Game of Thrones. Now, I've never heard of Jane Espenson. <laughs> so, I don't know how great a... Not only that, but if the someone who's writing for Game of Thrones has time to make a ringle, she can't be that important a writer at, at the Game of Thrones writing table, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so there it is, Tom. I know you're speechless, but there it is. Mark, how do you find this stuff? That's what I want to know, because <laughs> you come up with the craziest... <laughs> no, seriously. I think the whole My... program has got to shift away from all of the serious media stuff to, to he- headlines and rants. Well, all I can say is, despite what I just said, I have a strange urge for Pringles right now. So if you have a strange... Let that be our word of the week. Hashtag Pringles. Look, okay. Mark, the good news is, if you had that spoon, you could have the Pringles and be eating something really healthy <laughs> and at the same time. <laughs> It's funny, I was thinking of inviting some folks over and cooking some food and forcing them to use that very spoon. I think it would really change the whole vibe of the evening. That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher or Google Play or wherever. And while you're there, please rate the show. You know it helps other folks discover us. Uh, and also, if you use the, uh, what's it called, Tom? The Happy Happy Spoon? No, I can't remember the name taste of it. Taste Buddy. I know. You lose it. It's taste, a taste Buddy, <laughs> I think, or something. If you like. use a Taste Buddy, this podcast will sound better. You can also catch <laughs> us at art19.com, Radio Inc., oh Media Village. Oh, my God, Mike. Ear Buddy. Isn't that a great idea? Yeah, I, I, I figured it out. You listen what to us, but you're hearing something else completely different. Yeah, exactly. It's You thought it was us. It turns out to be car talk. <laughs> you can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your co- questions and comments using hashtag no, media unplugged, and my idiot brother and I will uh, answer your questions <laughs> for you. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. <laughs> Catch, oh, one of us is dead, by the way. You'll have to guess which. <laughs> Catch up on... <laughs> go, go to the Wax Museum and you'll see which one. <laughs> Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. Thanks, too, to NPR that keeps running our show, Car (laughs) car Talk, even though um, we haven't been doing it now for about five years. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening. 